good morning, everybody. So good to see you on this Sunday after Easter. I'm really glad you're here, one and all. Members, regular attenders, guests alike, I'm delighted you're here on this Sunday as we've worshiped the Lord through song, and now let's worship through the Word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and open your Bibles in the New Testament to the book of Acts. You know, the New Testament begins with four stories of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the next book, the fifth book of the New Testament, is the book of Acts. And it is such an important book, and it's one we're reading in our chapter-a-day readings right now. We began this last week. We read through Luke, and now we've begun through Acts. And if you haven't joined in that journey yet, I really want to encourage you to do that. If you don't have another Bible reading plan going that gets you in the Word in a significant way every day, then text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up with your email address and join with literally hundreds of us as we're reading and abiding in God's Word and allowing Him to shape our lives through the truth of His Word. Now, as we're preparing to hear the Word here in the Worship Center, I want to offer a warm welcome to everybody in our contemporary service. I'm really glad you're here today, as well as those who are joining on TV and online. I'm glad you're here today, too. So, what's the title of today's message? Look at it. It's on your outline. It's called, After the Resurrection, Lessons from the Earliest Church. Now, I don't know how you felt about our resurrection celebration last week, but I just thought it was a fabulous weekend, didn't you? I mean, we just welcomed hundreds and hundreds of people. There was great fellowship, great food. The music was marvelous. We encouraged one another. We celebrated the truth of the gospel. And dozens and dozens of people responded in various ways. Some repenting and believing. Others saying they wanted to be baptized. Others wanting to join our church. Others expressing new steps of commitment. So we just had a fabulous time last weekend at really uh, on what is one of two great festivals in the Christian year. What's the other big festival? Well, it's Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ. And the other, the other is Easter when we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But you know what? The, the church doesn't just gather on two big festival weekends. We gather every week on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, which in a sense is Resurrection Day every week. You know, it's not, every weekend is not Easter weekend. And to pretend otherwise would be disingenuous, right? Uh, every, every week can't be a celebration and a festival at that level. But every week can be a celebration of the truth of the gospel, the resurrection power of Christ, the difference he's made in our lives. And I'm so happy that you're here on this week following Easter weekend. And so today I want us to look to the book of Acts, the first six chapters, and learn a few lessons for the weeks following Easter. Let's begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt 
with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we probably ought to stop after that first verse and just make sure we're on the same page. So the writer of the book of Acts is referring to his first book. Do you know what that first book would be that the writer of the book of Acts wrote? What's that first book that he's referring to? If you know, tell me. Do you know what it is? Yeah, that's right, some of you do. It's the Gospel of Luke. And so the same man who wrote the Gospel of Luke that we read on the way up to Easter also wrote the book of Acts, the first volume about Jesus' birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And then the book of Acts picks up the story with the ascension and then moves forward after that. You know, we don't know a, lot, a great lot about Luke. He's only mentioned by name three times in the New Testament. In Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, Philemon verse 24. But what we do know is Paul calls him the beloved physician. Uh, he was apparently a doctor and he was much loved by the apostle Paul. We also know that when Paul was near the end of his life in prison in Rome, writing 2 Timothy, Luke was with him. In fact, many others had abandoned him, but Paul wrote, Luke alone is with me. And in Philemon 24, Paul refers to him as one of his fellow workers. The first time we see Luke appear, really, is in Acts 16.10, when he says, using the inclusive we... And us, he begins to describe in the book of Acts, Paul's second missionary journey. So, we don't know an awful lot about the author, but we do know some. And God used him to write to this friend, Theophilus, the gospel of Luke, and now the book of Acts. We'll look at the next verse. Verse 3, it says, After Jesus had, uh, had ro rose from the dead and taught the apostles, look at verse 3, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but now you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he said, you guys are really asking the wrong question. You're asking the when question and there's another one that's more important than that. You see, here he says, it's not for you to know the times. The Greek word there is chronos. He said, I'm not going to give you the tick, tick, tick time, the calendar time, the epochs and ages time, or the seasons, he says. The Greek word there is the word kairos. It means uh, special moments where God is at work in history to accomplish his purposes. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you're not going to know the day or the hour. What's he saying in all that? He's saying, listen, you guys, 
as enticing as it is, don't focus on the when question. Instead, focus on the what. What does God intend for you to do? Now that I am raised from the dead and I'm about to ascend to the Father. And then he gives them verse 8. It's the most important verse in the book of Acts. I want you to read it aloud with me. Everybody here in the room, everybody in our contemporary service, let's read it aloud together. It begins with, but you will receive power. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said, here's the most important question. Not when, but what, and what I expect you to do is once you have received the Holy Spirit and power, I want you to be my witnesses. Here, there, everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Those instructions still haven't changed. Verse 9 says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, if you were a part of our journey up to Easter, you know that we attempted to connect some significant biblical dots in the life story of Jesus. How many of you all ever did as a kid one of those little book full of dot-to-dot things? Anybody ever do dot-to-dot things? I did those. I loved it because I never was very artistic. I couldn't just sit down with a blank sheet of paper and, you know, come up with my own drawing that was beautiful. But if you would give me a bunch of numbers and dots, I could connect the dots. And all of a sudden, it would be something good and beautiful. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been attempting to connect some dots. Look at it. I put the dots I want you to connect on your outline. We begin by the first dot. Jesus' person, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. Then we learn, second dot, Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father. He was preacher, teacher, healer, and example for us to follow. Third dot, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was buried. We really focused on that on Palm Sunday. And then last week, We focused on the fourth dot. Do you see it? Jesus was raised on the third day and appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days. But now those four dots, as important as they are, doesn't get the picture complete. There are three more dots. Write them in on your outline. Here they are. The the fourth or the fifth dot is Jesus ascended. He ascended to the Father. We just read about that. In Acts chapter 1, he literally rose from their sight into a cloud, ascended to heaven, and the angel said, just as he ascended, one day he will come again. So where is he now? Write it in. It's the sixth dot. Jesus now sits. 
Now, the Bible sometimes pictures him standing in heaven or walking amidst his people, but by far the largest number of references refer to him as sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is making intercession for us. What does that sitting mean? It means the work of redemption is done, and he has sat down. The work of redemption is over, and now he's at the place of authority. This is sometimes called the session of Jesus. Why? Because the Latin word sessio means to sit or sitting, and so Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. But the last dot we need to connect, here it is, dot number seven, is Jesus will one day return. He will return in great power and glory to gather his people, to defeat his enemies, to rule and to reign. The one who was born of a virgin is one day coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me ask you, have you connected all the dots with me this morning? If you have, uh, would you say amen so I'll know you're out there. Okay, I'm hearing you today. All the dots are connected. That's the big story. It's really important that we not see any of those in isolation, but that we connect them together. So, now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, has sent his Holy Spirit to empower us, what are a few of the lessons that we learn in the first six chapters of the book of Acts? I'll certainly not be able to explicate them all. There are many more than those I've chosen for this morning. Uh, you may have underlined several others, but let me give you just three or four. Here's one you can't miss that was true for those first followers, ought to be true for us. Here it is. Write it in. Number one, the first followers of Jesus trusted in God's sovereignty, they trusted in God's sovereignty, and believed that everything was unfolding according to God's plan. They trusted in God's sovereignty and believed that everything was unfolding according to God's plan, and we should too. You know, after Jesus appeared to them over 40 days and went back to heaven, they they were thinking about all these things in light of the Old Testament scripture, in light of all that he had taught them. And, and they began to see, this is all just as God planned it. We can trust him as we look back and see how he was faithful in his plan. We can look forward to the future and trust him with that as well. Let me show you a couple of places where this trust in God's sovereignty appears. Look at it. It's in Acts chapter 2, and it begins in verse 22. What does it say? Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, here it is, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, Peter doesn't just stop there affirming God's sovereignty in Jesus' crucifixion. But the last part of that sentence, he affirms the responsibility of those who did that great evil. Look at it. He says, men of Israel, you crucified him. 
and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's saying, listen, it was wrong for you guys to put him to death. He was innocent. He was God's Messiah. He had done nothing wrong. You accused him falsely. You maligned him. And you persuaded the rulers to crucify him. And you are responsible for that. You ought to say you're sorry and repent of it. And at the same time, he said, but even while you're responsible for the death of Jesus, it happened just like God planned because in Isaiah 53, it says it was God's will to lay on him the iniquity of us all when he died on the cross. Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's giving us a beautiful framework to see all of life in where we affirm God is sovereign and we are responsible and we hold those two together and we never break them apart. Let me show you another place where that appears. It's in Acts chapter 4. Look at it on your outline. And when they heard it, when they heard what some of the leaders were trying to say to them to keep them from sharing the good news, those first followers lifted their voices together to God and said, notice how they address him, sovereign Lord. The Greek word there is despotes. We get our word despot from it. Now, in our vernacular, a despot often is a, has an evil connotation. It does not hear. It just simply means the all-powerful one, the one who rules and reigns with absolute authority. They prayed, sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, God is sovereign in creation. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointing. In other words, God is sovereign in revelation. They interpret history in light of scripture. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, who was gathered against him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And what did they all do? Look at verse 28. To do, sovereign Lord, whatever your hand and your plan had to do whatever your hand and your plan had I'm not sure these Baptist lips can say that Presbyterian word Would you all help me to do whatever your hand and your sovereign plan had? Help me. Thank you. <laughs> had predestined to take place. Listen, that's not a Presbyterian word. It's not a Baptist word. It's a biblical word. It's God's word. 
and we ought to trust it. Some of you say, man, I just can't wrap my head around that, Pastor, how God can be sovereign and we can be responsible. It's hard for me to put that together. I get it. I understand. It's like a pastor who was preaching in a conference and he was having to fly to get there and the airline had mechanical trouble on the plane and he was late getting there. So when he stood up in front of the conference, he had to say, you all, I'm so sorry, I am late, but God is sovereign and Delta Airlines is responsible (laughs) for me being late. You see... There is almost always, even when we can't see it, God working out his perfect plan and our responsibility, and we should never break those two truths apart. Why? What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to just say we live in a universe where it's just all random. It's just all chance. It's just all luck. It's just all happenstance. But is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God was working out his plan, and he's working out his plan in my life and yours. So in the toughest of days, guess what we ought to do? We ought to look heavenward, and we ought to say, oh, Lord, Show me how to live in obedience to what you've revealed. And as I do that, I'm going to trust your sovereign will for my life. That's the way God intends us to live. Well, let's look on and see two or three other lessons real quickly. We also learn in these first chapters of Acts, right at end number two, that those first followers were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit who empowered their witness, and we should be too. Now, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. When we are converted, he regenerates us. He opens our eyes. He opens our mind. He opens our heart. He convicts us of sin as we trust Christ. He seals us. He indwells us. He baptizes us in the Spirit. And then day by day, we're to be filled with the Spirit. Do you see Acts 2, 4? It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the evidence of that filling? They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What were those other tongues in this setting? Well, they were the languages of the people who had come to Jerusalem for Passover. And so now everybody around the world was hearing the gospel in Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit filled God's people. Look at it a little bit later in Acts 4, you see the same principle. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know what one of the surest evidences is that you are filled with the Holy Spirit? It is that you have the desire and that you actually engage in conversations with others about Jesus, how to know him, how to follow him, how to live for it. 
That truth is there again and again in the book of Acts. What about you? Is there that evidence in your life? Here's the third truth. Those first believers, number three, were courageous and bold. Courageous and bold in their witness, even in the face of opposition. And we should be too. Look at it in Acts 5. It says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council. And notice how they left when they had been told, after they were beaten and told not to speak. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, I love this. They did not cease. They did not stop teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. None of us knows what the days ahead hold for devoted Christ followers in the Western world and in this country. For many, many years, um, the Judeo-Christian framework has shaped our culture to such an extent that Active persecution of those who follow Christ has not been a reality for us. But it may be in the days ahead. And if it is, how should you and I be ready to respond? We should rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer in Jesus' name. And we should not stop. We should keep on sharing the news with joy, winsomeness, Gladness, courage, boldness, and in that, God will be pleased and will be blessed. Well, there's one more thing I want you to see before we wrap up today, and that's the fourth lesson. It's in Acts 6. That those early believers addressed their growing pains so that even more disciples could be made. And we should continue to do that too. Address our growing pains so that more disciples can be made. Look at it, Acts 6. says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and I love that, if you read through the book of Acts, God's plan for his church is for disciples to increase in number. I'm praying that for our church. I'm praying that for churches all around our country, all around the world, that more and more disciples would be made. Look at it. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists, that is Greek speakers, arose against the Hebrews, that is Hebrew speakers, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Nobody was trying to mistreat these widows. It's just the church was growing rapidly and some were getting overlooked. So the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right. We should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So, brothers, prick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we'll keep on devoting ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the whole group said this is a good idea. It pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles. They prayed, laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase as a result of them resolving the growing pains by mobilizing more people to take care of the widows, 
the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, what do churches have to do if they want to continue to make disciples? They have to address the lids, the barriers, the growing pains that keep that from happening. Do any of you know what the typical size is of most Protestant churches that will gather for worship in the United States today? Anybody here know what the typical size is? What do you guess? Tell me a number. Tell me what you think. Typical church gathers on Sunday morning. What's the typical size of it, do you reckon? 300? Somebody else? What? 500? Somebody else? 250? What else? Going once? Going twice? It's between 70 and 100. between 70 and 100. Now think a little more deeply. Why do you think that just a huge number of Protestant churches that gather on a Sunday morning are between 70 and 100? Why would it be that way? Well, the answer is, the answer is, is because between 70 and 100 is about how many folks one pastor can shepherd, care for, love, pray for, invest in. And so when it gets to about that size, guess what happens? It's hard for it to move beyond that because new people feel like they're not loved and cared for. And in fact, because the people who are in that little group of 70 or 100 love the care they're receiving, they just say, look, y'all go somewhere else. We don't want you around here. And some of you are saying, do they really say that? Well, not in so many words, but they say things like, you're sitting in my seat. I've always sat in that seat. What are you doing here? Or they say things like, you're messing up our fellowship. Our little class, our little group, it's been us four, no more, forever and ever. And so after a while, the newcomers get the message. Not enough pastors to care for me, and they don't really want me here. And so guess what? Most of the churches in this country chug along, and some of them have great fellowship, great care, faithful preaching, but they just chug along with 1,700 folks. I'm so thankful that those apostles didn't choose that mode. I'm so thankful that they said, you know what? The most important thing is that we make disciples. And now we've got so many widows that some of them are being overlooked. Hallelujah. So let's do this. Instead of making the size of the church in Jerusalem limited by the capacity of one apostle or 12 apostles, let's mobilize some more caregivers so that now the disciple making can continue and folks will be well cared for and well loved and disciple making can flourish. Church family, I'm so glad that long time ago, we settled that issue at Ingleside. 
We said our goal is to make disciples and it ought not be limited by the capacity of one person or one group of people. Aren't you glad of that? Otherwise, otherwise, guess what? Most of y'all could not be here this morning. Listen, there's so many lessons for us in the book of Acts. What are the ones I haven't talked about? Well, there were signs and wonders and healing and miracles. And oh, I pray that God would do just that kind of miraculous work among us again. There was generosity and joy and need meeting. I pray God would do that among us again. You see, I think our best days of disciple making are yet ahead. And I want you to be a part of that journey as we walk into that future. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this church family. Thank you for all you have done, are doing, and will do. I pray, oh Lord, that we would live in that sweet spot that affirms your sovereignty and our responsibility. I pray you'd fill us with the Spirit. I pray you'd make us bold witnesses and help us solve our growing pains so that we can keep on making disciples. Thank you, O oh Lord, for teaching us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.